Our gospel reading this morning comes from the 22nd chapter of the gospel according to Matthew, beginning in the 34th verse. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment, and a second is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now while he had the Pharisees right there, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think of the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, well, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David by the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David thus calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could give Jesus an answer, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, we're going to weave these two readings together this morning, the reading about Moses that Diane read for us just a few minutes ago, and then this gospel reading from Matthew. Last Sunday, you heard a little bit about Moses' backside encounter with God. And in case you weren't here, the story goes like this. It was toward the end of Moses' life, and he wants a little more certainty about God, and I think a little bit of affirmation about the value of the work that he'd done, and so he asked to see God's face. And if you recall from our reading last week, in a sort of partial answer to this request, Moses was allowed to see God's back as God passed by him. After this slightly unsatisfying, if metaphorically enlightening, brush with divinity, our next encounter with Moses is the one that you heard Diane read this morning. It's the narrative of his death. I've always struggled with this ending to the story because Moses is denied the opportunity to enter the promised land before he dies. He's courageously led the Israelites out of Egypt. He's struggled with them in the wilderness for 40 years. He's experienced moments of triumph and the disappointment of mistakes. But in the final analysis, this man of God and this leader of the people is not permitted to enter the promised land. And as I collected my thoughts this week, and obviously when I penned my sermon title, I had to wrestle with my own visceral response to this outcome to the Moses story. I think for our purposes this morning, it's helpful to understand why it is that Moses wasn't allowed to enter the Promised Land. You have to go back to the book of Numbers, and I looked far and wide, but this reading does not make it into the lectionary, so I'm telling you a story here that you probably won't hear from the pulpit very often. But in this story, the people are in the wilderness, and as usual, they are complaining. And they say things like, why did you bring us out here? If we were going to die, we could have died in Egypt where the food was better. You dragged us out in the wilderness so that we could die slowly and our cattle could die slowly because we don't have anything to drink. So Moses and Aaron, they go and they talk to God. And God says, well, take your staff and assemble the people and raise your staff in front of this rock and I'll call forth water as a sign of my power and holiness. And so Moses goes back to the people and he kind of starts to do what God tells him to. But ultimately, he's mad. And he says, look, you rebels, you want to see water? I'll show you water. And he hits the rock with his staff. And they get their water. But Moses' punishment for handling the situation this way is that he doesn't get to enter the promised land. 
So with that frame in mind, we come back to this reading for this morning. Moses gets to stand there on the mountain and take one sweeping look at this beautiful land to which his people are ultimately headed. And then he dies without ever getting to set foot there. How can you say anything but that's not fair? On the surface, it seems like a bitter disappointment. And it makes God seem a little bit nitpicky and pretty punitive. (coughs) One mistake costs Moses the reward of occupying this land that God has promised to the people. Now we're going to leave this story aside for a moment. I want to come back to our gospel reading for a second. In it, we see the Pharisees once again trying to catch Jesus in a slip. This has been their MO. We've been hearing these readings now for several weeks. You might recall last week, I think Courtney read the reading in which they try to catch Jesus talking about taxes. Well, you you say we're to follow God, but what do we do with our money? Do we give it to Caesar or don't we? And you know, Jesus points to the coin and says, whose face is on it? Give to God what's God's and give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Today, they ask Jesus, well, what's the greatest commandment? And he replies with words that I think are well known to us. First, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And we're going to come up back to those statements, but first, we get to see Jesus turn the tables and ask them a question. He asks them to describe the relationship between the Messiah that they're waiting for and their beloved patriarch, King David. And they venture an explanation based on their understanding. They reply with a well-prepared answer. Jesus doesn't exactly tell them their answer's wrong. I think he upends their previously held categories and kind of leaves them without any answer at all. They walk away frustrated and determined, forget it, not asking any more questions. So what do we make of this? What does Jesus' challenging question to the Pharisees mean compared to the statement to love God and to love our neighbor? And what light does this shed on our kind of disappointing end to the Moses story? I wonder if we take time to consider the story after the Israelites got to Canaan. One of the Hebrew Bible stories that I was taught as a young child is the conquest of Jericho, and maybe this is gonna ring a bell for some of you. I grew up singing the song, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. (laughs) I see some nods. Upon their arrival in the promised land, God gives Joshua these instructions. You're gonna go with the priests and the trumpets and you're gonna march around the city, right? Every day for six days. And on the seventh day, you're gonna march around seven times. And on that seventh time, you're gonna raise a mighty yell and the walls are gonna fall and you're gonna occupy the city. And that's what they do. Joshua goes out led by the priests and they march around the city. And on that seventh day, they march the seventh time and they shout and the walls of the city fall And Joshua goes on to say this, that the city and all that is in it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. The people shout and the trumpets are blown and the walls fall and then they go in and they kill every man and every woman and every child and every ox and every sheep and every donkey. They burn down the city and everything in it. Not only do they burn it down, they don't burn it down to live there. Joshua says, cursed before the Lord be anyone who ever even tries to rebuild this city of Jericho. I think Christian interpretation has tended to whitewash this story a little bit, but it's challenging. The reality is that there's a lot of death and there's a lot of destruction. And if we take the story at face value, it looks like destruction for destruction's sake. Now, from this perspective, I invite you to reconsider the Moses narrative 
a little bit differently. After a long struggle in the wilderness, Moses is privileged to stand on the mountain and survey the beautiful fertile land to which God has brought the people, and he never has to see the callous bloodshed or the destruction of a city. He doesn't have to participate in the eviction of the people for whom Canaan was a homeland. Instead, he takes in the grand vision before him and he acknowledges God's provision and guidance, and then he is quietly laid to rest in the hands of God. Seen from this perspective, we might say that it's a blessing Moses never made it to the promised land. Instead of being grossly unfair, we might say it was quite gracious. Moses, who liberated the people from bondage in Egypt, died never having to see those same people become perpetrators of violence. I think there's another important point to be made here. As human beings, particularly in our time and our place in the 21st century, we are very outcome-oriented. When we get to middle school, we start thinking about high school. And when we're in high school, we're thinking about college. And when we're in college, we're thinking about our first job. And by the time we get our first job, we're planning our retirement. <laughs> How easy it is with such a mindset to lose sight of the tremendous blessings of being on a journey. If we look at that Moses story from a more narrative perspective, we have to acknowledge the tremendous content of his life. And our scripture reading this morning does. The absence of what we perceive as this final arrival at the goal need not detract from everything that went before it. He was a liberator, and he was courageous, and he was faithful, and he served to bring his people closer to God over and over and over again. Certainly the fact that he never got to see the end of the journey, so to speak, takes nothing away from the value of the road that he walked. And I think this raises important questions for us this morning. How often does our lack of insight about an outcome keep us from starting down the road? How often does our sense that we can't solve all the problems stop us from tackling any of them? How often does the fear that we might not be able to bring something to fruition keep us from doing whatever part we can? In a sense, Moses didn't get to see the end of the journey, and in a sense, it wasn't fair. But his life was a mighty witness to the presence of God, whether he ever set foot in the promised land or not. I don't want you to hear me saying this morning that God causes or even allows tragedy or injustice in the world. Truthfully, I struggle with whether God really intended for the Israelites to go in and annihilate another group of people in order to take that land. And I struggle with the fact that Moses didn't get to set foot in the promised land after such a long journey there. Whether intervention or punishment are accurate ways to understand God in the world are tough theological issues and ones that we're going to leave aside for this morning, although I'd be happy to take them up with you at another time. But leaving aside those difficult questions, I think that oftentimes our sense of what is fair comes from a limited perspective. I think that without meaning to, we're often just like the Pharisees. We approach God with some kind of skin-deep questions that may miss the, most, the more profound truths of the situations in which we find ourselves. So Jesus' simple-sounding replies to the Pharisees about loving God and about loving their neighbor as themselves are anything but simple. He's not just changing the answers, he's changing the questions, and he's upsetting the categories. So I want to say this to you this morning. I believe there's a God-given passion or calling or seed or whatever you want to call it in each one of us. 
And the question becomes this, are you gonna be a Pharisee or are you gonna be a Moses? Are you gonna find a loophole such that your current way of thinking about things is good enough? Or are you gonna throw yourself into the journey, being a person who mitigates God to other people, whether or not you ever fully understand entirely what that means? Here are some things that I know. I know there are children as close as downtown Cleveland who need our help. They need help surviving their educational process. Some of them need foster homes. Some of them need food. There are adults as close as Seeds of Literacy on West 25th Street who need to learn to read or write or pass their GED. And there are people as far away as Liberia who need our radical intervention if they are gonna survive the scourge of Ebola. There are children in Cambodia and Thailand and Vietnam and Toledo, Ohio, who need our intervention and support if they're to survive or avoid the evils of human trafficking. These are our neighbors. These are precious children of God for whom we are to work as hard as we would work for ourselves and whom we are to love as much as we love ourselves. How hard would you fight to learn to read or to get into college or to avoid being trafficked or to avoid getting Ebola? And are you willing to fight that hard for somebody else? Be a Moses. We're called to be liberators and world changers, and that's who we are. We're children of God, serving all of God's children in order that we might see God's kingdom come on earth. And we may never see that promised land, and it may not always seem entirely fair, but I think that it will be amazing. Amen.